morning, everyone. So great to see some old friends and some new friends, and hopefully we will be friends. Um, and we are really, really excited to, to have our housewarming to say, hey, this is our church family. Um, and, and look, if you want to know anything more about us, you know, stick around, have a chat. Uh, we don't bite. We are generally nice people, generally. Um, and we're going to have uh, a really great morning. And, um, you know, I wanted to take this opportunity this morning to share something that God has on my heart about our church and where we are going from here. The housewarming, kind of like a, a wedding ceremony, is, is a ceremony, is a moment in time. And then from there, life starts, right? So church is, lift doesn't, uh, is not completed this morning. In fact, I believe that we are just about to start into something fresh and new in our church, and I'm really excited to invite you along to share a bit of our heart about where we are going from here. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the privilege, Beck and myself, of um, being involved in a, a little uh, small gathering of pastors where we had a noted uh, prophet in our nation, Pastor Gary Morgan, uh, pray over each and every one of us. And as he spoke and prayed over Beck and myself, and by the way, he didn't know us from above, so he, he had never met us before, uh, but he said these lines, and for some of you, maybe you will go, yeah, that's ex exactly what we're trying to build here at Lyft, because this is what he said, I see a table and not a temple. And the Lord's given you a temple, this building, and he, he didn't really know much about all of that either. So, and the Lord's given you a temple, but he's given you a table first. And I see the Lord restoring the power of the table of what it is to connect. So can we just pray God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you speak to each and every single one of us about what you are wanting to do, what you're wanting to accomplish, and I pray that our hearts will be soft uh, to receive your word for us this morning, and we pray this in your name, amen. Now, for those of you who know me, uh, you know that I am a nerd, and um, most of you come here on Sundays because you want to hear what the new thing the nerd has read, right? <laughs> yes? Uh, what, 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 it's kind of like dance monkey, except I'm not a monkey, I'm a nerd. And so it's like, push me and see what new fact comes out. Well, I've learned a new fact. <laughs> that cities, as we know it, metropolis, has only come about in human history about 6,000 years ago. That's not that long, right? 6,000 years ago, people suddenly decided that living in rural villages was not the way to go, and so the mass population started to uh, collect in what we call cities about 6,000 years ago. And so archaeologists and uh, historians started to ask the question, what made people decide, I'm no longer going to live in my little village um, and probably do everything that I need just for myself and my family, and why do people decide to do that leave that and move towards cities where people uh, started to specialize in certain tasks and started to do community and life in a radically different way. And so they started to look into different things. And one really interesting fact is that back in ancient times, we have archaeological remains um, of monuments. Some of you might know some of these monuments. One of them is Stonehenge. I think I've got a picture of Stonehenge. Good old Stonehenge. We know that this place exists. And the interesting thing about Stonehenge is that there actually are 
no remains of people living at Stonehenge. It is a bunch of rocks in the middle of nowhere that clearly humans have formed. And it was like, why? Now, I never knew this, but around Stonehenge, somewhat spread out over that whole plain, are other circular monuments that archaeologists have found. And so they, there are a number of these, maybe about four or five, and archaeologists reckon that if they dug further, they were probably going to find way more of these circular monuments. And so they started to think, what in the world was going on? Was it aliens? Was it a miracle of God? Is this the gateway to Ragnarok? No, that's probably, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> but... We have these things, right? And they, and they started to go, what was going on? And so they started to realize that what ancient people used to do is that they would leave their villages, their little settlements, and come together probably once a year, maybe twice a year, to engage in these monument-building exercises. They, they would actually decide, we are going to meet as a few different villages, come together and move these rocks, quarry these rocks, prepare these rocks, prop up these rocks, which is physically crazy without machines. And that's what they did. And then they would do these probably because of some kind of religious reason. And then once they completed it, they would have this big celebration. And then they would go and find another suitable site and do it all over again. Why? It's because getting together was a lot of fun. <laughs> and they got some kind of human connection, and they, got, they floated their boat to build circular monuments made of rocks, and it somehow fulfilled some kind of religious belief at the same time. And so what archaeologists then went and, and they theorized is that people so enjoyed coming together to make circular monuments of rocks. By the way, there is a, a whole bunch of circular type things in, um, in, in Asia as well. This is not just weird Europeans. Us Asians do it too. And, and our ancient people, we do these things because archaeologists reckon there was something about getting together, having to rely on one another, differentiating in the way that we do things and specializing. You're an architect. You are really great at bashing rocks. And you're really great at carrying rocks. And you are really great at placing rocks. And they loved all these differentiation of tasks rather than you got to be the one that uh, tills the ground and puts the seed in and feed the animals and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so cities form because somewhere along the line, people went, I don't just want to have a celebration of community once a year. I want to do it year round. That's what archaeologists are saying. I'm reading this book and I'm like, that's really weird. And, and so when people started to come together in cities, they needed to learn a whole bunch of new behaviors that wasn't natural to them. They needed to learn how to get water and food into the place. They needed to learn how to get waste out of that place. They needed to learn how to communicate with one another. They needed to create moral, ethical, and behavioral codes so that the city would continue to function. And there was this really interesting story about a Roman soldier that wrote in his journal that when you walk along an alleyway next to a building, one of the things that you need to do is to watch out for people sitting and opening up the window of the second story and throwing out 
human waste. Because at that time, they were still figuring out, where does the waste go? Oh, outside of my house. And so the alleyways weren't necessarily footpaths as we know it. It was a common area for waste and people. And so as you can see in this little story, people needed to figure things out. How many of you would like to walk around Belmont, which has a lot of apartment buildings, needing to go, let's watch out, any windows opening? No, we're good, we're good. Run, run, run! <laughs> we don't do that because we have come up with all sorts of behavioral codes, ethical codes, moral codes for living together. And I wonder whether we are in a season of time where we are needing to revisit what it means to connect. Because when I go out and I go to a restaurant where there is a wonderful table, where people come and serve wonderful food, one of the things that I see so often is that there are people sitting at the table, but they're not connecting with the person across the table from them, they're connecting with a screen. And when you go to the shops, where previously they were probably called bazaars, and people would just go, and the whole point of going to the shops was to interact with people. But then I see many husbands standing outside shops while their better halves are in there rummaging through stuff. And what are the husbands doing? They could probably have a good conversation. What's, what's your woman doing? Rummaging? Yeah, mine too. We've got a common point. Let's have a conversation. What do you like? Sport? Yeah. Why are you here? Oh, because you want to have a better marriage. That's fantastic. Good. There's so much that we could be talking about, but when we go to the shops, what do we see men doing outside shops? And look, I'm not immune to this. Before Sam came into our lives, we have a dining table, a great dining table. And we wouldn't sit around a dining table. We'd sit in front of the television where there was no need for conversation and there wasn't any need for interaction. In fact, it was a great time of shutting down and, and, and having food. But when Sam came into our lives, we decided, no, we don't want Sam to grow up in a family where we are in the same building but we are not connecting. And I wonder whether, with what Pastor Gary was saying, is that we are in a pivotal moment in time we are in a city, uh, the city of Belmont, and we're just outside the town of Vic Park, and both of those areas have an extremely high percentage of people living in single-person dwellings. At least a third of people, well, not at least, around a third of people in these two areas are living in single-person uh, dwellings, which is not a problem, but I'm wondering, we came into the cities because we wanted to connect, and then we found a way how not to connect. We came into the cities because we learned that human interaction is something that is actually so wonderful and something that is so necessary and something that we want 24-7. And then we've gone the other way a few thousand years later and we go, it's so much better for me to connect with a phone or a screen and to be entertained within myself without needing to talk to someone else. Beck and I, and some of our other roles that we play, uh, we have been tasked with teaching young people how to talk to adults. We are literally paid to teach young people how to talk to adults. That's one of the, one of the ways that we make money is from the dysfunction of our society where people don't know how to talk to each other anymore. So please, go ahead and be dysfunctional because I'm being paid more. 
But when I look at the Word of God, I think that that's something that shouldn't be the case. And I read about this um, as I was researching for this. It was really interesting. The book of Luke, which is, in my mind, the more uh, systematic, if you will, uh, record of Jesus' life. Luke, as a doctor, he really wanted to keep an accurate account of what Jesus did, how Jesus lived. And one of the interesting things that have come out of the book of Luke is that the book of Luke has Jesus either talking about meals or having meals far more times than the other Gospels. And it leads one theologian, his name is N.T. Wright, to make this comment. If Luke's vision of the Christian life from one point of view is a journey, because Luke shows Jesus' journey uh, kind of like toward Jerusalem, and that's another topic for another time, but from another point of view, it's a party. A theologian said that Jesus' life is a party. And I wonder whether us as Christians have lost something about coming together and having a table where we connect and have a party. And so today, we want to have a party. We want to have hot dogs and soup. But more than the food, it's about the people around the table. I see the Lord restoring the power of the table of what it is to connect. See, Jesus sat at many tables. He sat with the poor, and He sat with the rich. He sat with the powerful. He sat with the sinners. He sat with everyone in between and he connected with people. And I want to focus on one of these meal accounts in Luke chapter 14, and this is what it says in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the people that uh, were basically the religious leaders, they were the cultural leaders of Israel. They were the ones that said, this is what it means to be God's people, this is what it means to be holy, this is what it means to be acceptable by God. And so the ruler of the Pharisees, a leading Pharisee, decided to have a party, and they decided to have Jesus come, and it says they were watching him carefully. See, Jesus did not, he knew, Jesus knew that this wasn't a party to be relaxed at. He knew that this was a party where he was going to be tested. He still went to the party, and he still interacted with these people. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to be more like Jesus, this is way too hard for me. If I know that someone's inviting me to a meal where they're going to test me, I'll be like, test yourself, mate. It's like, I'm not going to this. But anyway, it says, and behold, as though by magic, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So this sick man didn't just appear the ruler of the Pharisees decided to test Jesus by having a sick man come to the same table. And this man came, and this party was held on the Sabbath, and so Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him on his way. He said, mate, this is not for you. You are now healed. Leave this table because this is a table full of vipers and snakes. <laughs> Can you imagine that? What a crap party. Seriously. And so Jesus says to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? They couldn't reply to him. They just wanted to test him. They just wanted to see in their very simplistic mindsets, does Jesus break the law? And therefore, is Jesus unclean and unworthy of the Father's table? And that was what was going on. 
And so verse 7, we move on and we see this. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who is invited you will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, and then the host will say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And then he also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So we get this really interesting passage. After Jesus kind of notices what is going on at this feast, at this party, and then he kind of sees them, and then he gives what seems to be a couple of pretty good social advisors. One is, don't honor yourself before someone honors you because you're going to be dishonored and it's going to be embarrassing. Sounds right, yeah? And he says, and by the way, when you're going to hold a party, invite those who cannot repay you because then God will repay you. Also sounds kind of good. But there's something about this that struck me as I was looking into it because it says in verse 7, and then he told a parable. And it's never struck me this way before, because when I look at these things, it sounds like advice, but Luke says they are not advice, they are parables. Now, what are parables? Parables, as we kind of talk about it, are stories with kind of like a moral attached to it. Jesus was trying to show something about the kingdom life that was being demonstrated in this space and in this moment. And so Jesus wasn't just talking about people understanding how to save face. He wasn't trying to teach people just about how all of uh, our social settings should be, because Jesus himself would probably go against his rules and actually make a scene rather than save his face. He would, uh, you know, create awkward situations in these parties because that's kind of what he did. And so Jesus wasn't trying to teach us about social norms or how to behave. He was trying to show us something about the kingdom. So what is it that Jesus was trying to show us about the kingdom? Well, we're going to need to read the third parable in order to understand that. And so in verse 15, this is where we also get something really quite interesting. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, him being Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And what does this tell me? It tells me that those who were there listening to Jesus knew that Jesus wasn't addressing the current situation as much as he was addressing what the kingdom of heaven is meant to be like. And even those around the table heard that and they went, I want to be at that table. Do you see this? They heard that Jesus was saying, it's not about fighting for position. It is not about fighting for personal gain. It is about having a generous feast and a generous heart where people come together and are accepted and are loved. And this guy who was one of the Pharisees of the nation goes, wow, what a feast and I want to be there. 
That was what was going on. And so Jesus then says to him, oh my gosh, this is going to get awkward. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time of the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there still is plenty of room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So this is what we normally know as a parable. Jesus tells a bit more of a story, and there's a moral here, but they all fit together. Luke 14 fits together as one big interaction. That's what we need to hold in mind. And so what Jesus was actually saying to the people in the room is that you have made it so that you think that you have been invited to the Lord's table. You are the keepers of what is clean, in this community, and rightly so. You have been invited to the Lord's table. However, you have received the invite, but you've rejected actually being at the table. Jesus was telling these Pharisees who had gathered together in one place, supposedly to test Jesus and to see what he's really about, and Jesus points out that none of these men who held themselves in such esteem were actually going to taste of the feast of the Father, not because they didn't receive the invite, but because they got a little bit too busy and frankly up themselves to respond to the Master's invite. And Jesus gives this story, and if you notice the excuses that each of these three men make, each one of them was about personal business or personal gain or personal relationships. And in our minds, that all kind of sounds right and well. If I was invited to a party, but I had just bought a business, I would probably go look after my business, right? Or maybe if I've just bought some new equipment and it was, being arri it was arriving that day, I would probably go check it out. And if I was just getting married, if I'd just been married and the party is the next day, I'd probably be like, mate, sorry, just got married. So it kind of sounds right. But I think what Jesus is trying to say in this whole uh, parable is that when you realize who has invited you to his table, when you have been given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit at the Lord's table and you look at your life and you think that sitting at the Lord's table is too inconvenient, you are going to miss the feast. How many of us understand that coming to the Lord's table isn't about getting what we want out of it, but it's actually connecting with Jesus, it's connecting with the Lord, and the connection, the choice to connect with God is sometimes going to be a personal inconvenience. I've got, in our previous office, I, I, I got this passage that was, uh, I put in front of me, because it said that 
when we are waiting for the day of the Lord, even those who are thinking about getting married should stop because the Lord is inviting us. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't get married. I think marriage is a wonderful thing. But what I'm saying is that what are we placing higher than being at the Lord's table? The Pharisees had Jesus at their table and they did not connect with him. The Pharisees had the Savior at their table and Jesus spoke this parable to them saying, you're not at the feast. But instead, who is going to be at the feast? The very people that are dismissed often is the poor, is the oppressed, is those who are needing the table and when they come, they will come in the droves and the parable is that there's so much space that everyone can fit in. But I want to just point out something here because sometimes we take this passage to mean literally only those who are poor and oppressed in our cultural mindset. I think when Jesus is talking about the poor and the oppressed and all of that, he's actually talking about every single one of us. And I think that's the problem with our tables, because we think that we don't need it. We don't connect with people because we think we are above the table. We are beyond the table now. We've got televisions. And connecting with some recorded image of a human being is so much better than actually having an awkward conversation with someone. Who knows what they're going to say? Who knows how they're going to act? Who knows what they're going to be like? And that's what church should be like. And that's why I think for us, it's not so much about the temple, but it's about the table. Because if we've got the temple, but no table, what do we have? We've got a lifeless monument to nothingness. It is the table that brings life to the temple. It's the table where the interactions and the connection happens. It's the table that reminds us of where we used to be, where we probably still are, if not for the grace of God. It is the table that reminds me that I'm a poor, crippled, oppressed, lousy human being. But God has invited me to His feast by His grace. And this leads N.T. Wright to make this statement about the Pharisees. He said that it was their pride that stopped them from actually understanding what the feast was all about. And this is what he writes. It's beautiful. He says, Pride, notoriously, is the great cloud that blots out the sun of God's generosity. If I reckon that I deserve to be favored by God, not only do I declare that I don't need His grace, mercy, and love, but I imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. And that's where the Pharisees were. I deserve it, so I get to do whatever I want with God's grace. Not knowing, not realizing that God's grace is an unmerited gift that I did not earn in the first place, but out of God's generosity, I received an invite to His table. And so, what the Pharisees then do is that they started to sort out, well, if God's invited me, obviously it means that I deserve it. And if I deserve it, I think that person doesn't. 
that broke Jesus' heart. Because that's not what the Lord's table is about. The Lord's table is not about earning a gift or being a certain way, but it's about connection. It's about saying, I want to be there. Church, understand that the invite to the Lord's table has been given out freely. Through the price of Jesus on the cross, the invite has been issued to every single one of us. It's not about whether you deserve it or not. It's about the grace and the generosity of God that was issued in the first place. And the invite went out, but how many of us are actually going to be at the table? Because the table requires connection. And I think some of us don't really like that. Some of us don't want to connect. Some of us want the table to be exclusively about people that I feel comfortable about. About people that I get along with. People that think the same way that I do. People that act the same way that I do. And Jesus is going, no, that's not your party. This is the Lord's party. If you want that party, make your own party outside of the kingdom. This is a harsh word. This is a strong word. Some of us have given up on the church because the church hasn't been generous enough. But maybe it's not so much that the church hasn't been generous enough, it's that all of us are kind of stingy and we are at the table. And we get to that table, it's like, well, that's stingy. No, it's like mean point at you, Graham. <laughs> that stingy is at that table, that must be a lousy table. How many of you got a wedding, right? And the first thing you do at the reception is like, who am I sitting with? I love that. At the same time, I hate it. Because I'm a pastor, and quite often, as the pastor, you get put with people that you think that the pastor is going to be really gracious to. <laughs> and so I'm sitting at that table, and I'm going, so I'm the gracious one. Right. I'm joking. Because I've been at many great tables, but it is a running joke around pastors. It's like, yes, you're going to be placed with some people and it's like, place me with the party table. But we like tables that make us feel comfortable. We like tables that are natural to us. The Pharisees threw a party for their own people and then invited Jesus and a sick man. And Jesus is like, this is the wrong kind of party. It reminds me of another table that the Bible tells us about. A table that we have all been invited to and a table that Jesus shows his heart. And we call it the Lord's Supper. And many of us, because of the great Da Vinci, we have this image of the Lord's Supper being this really long table with Jesus sitting in the middle and everyone sitting alongside him. That wasn't how the table ran. No one has a party with 13 men sitting in a row. This is a pretty bad party. More than likely, back in those days, the table would have been a low table, probably just that height. And the food would be here, and you're not going to see much of me, but the men would have reclined, and they would have reclined on their left arm, and the next person will be right there next to them. But if you notice something about reclining like that at the Lord's table, my feet is in someone else's face. 
And this made me think, right? Jesus got these 12 disciples, and they were going to have this last supper. It was a time of connection, and they got it all ready. They went to this upper room. They had all this food ready to go, and they had this table, and they started to lounge around. And Jesus probably went because he had Peter's feet in his face. He was like, oh, that's dirty. So what did Jesus do? He washed the feet. See, I think so many of us think that the Lord's table is like our modern tables where the feet are covered. We're interacting with the top half of the person's body, but back then when you were interacting around the table, you had the whole body there. And it literally said that John was so close to Jesus that he was reclining on Jesus. So it means that their feet were like right there. And that they had been walking and their feet were dusty. It wasn't very nice. So Jesus cleaned their feet in order that they could connect, in order that the waft from their dirty, disgusting feet would be covered sufficiently for their connection. Remember when Peter had his feet washed at the Lord's Supper, he was like, not me, Lord, you're too high and mighty to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if you don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Because I don't want to sit next to you. Like, literally, can we think about it in a social context? Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you are not sitting next to me. So we're all invited. And we connect. And that's Jesus' heart when it came to this moment at the Lord's table it was a moment of connection where people were sitting next to each other. God, I so want the table in this church where it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter your status or what successes you've had. But we all know that when we are at this table, our feet are dirty from life. We know that things have happened and we know that there are things that we don't like people to see, but we allow the Lord to wash that so that we can sit in community with one another. That is the point of the table I see the Lord restoring the power of the table of what it means to connect. That is where our church is going. It's not so that you are comfortable with the people that are in this building, but we are comfortable with the fact that God's grace is sufficient. It's not about whether you have made it and you are so good that you need to be invited, you deserve an invite to this table. No, it's not about that. It's about you recognizing that Jesus, wash my feet, please, so that I can have a place at this table. And so what did Jesus do? He washes our feet. And he prepares what we call the Eucharist, what we call the Lord's Supper, so that for future generations, that's how we know that our feet have been washed. And that we have a place at the table because of what Jesus has done. I don't know what to do about this. <laughs> i got one final thing that I just want to bring up this morning. If we can get the band up. We're going to have communion as a church. And through the years, the church has produced different, um, what we call catechisms. They are ways for us to understand what we are practicing as Christians. And there is one such catechism, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it explains the Lord's Supper, what we're going to do, 
right now in this way. So what is the Lord's Supper all about? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise, first, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves. How wonderful that in this confession, it wasn't about you having the bread alone, but it's the fact that someone brought this thing to you, this symbol to you. Second, as surely as I was offered, I received from the hand of the one who serves and tasted my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, given me a sure signs of Christ's body and blood. So surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Why do we do a tangible Lord's Supper? Why do we have these? It's because in the moment where we see these symbols, it's meant to bring us back to what it would have been like lounging at the table with Jesus and him saying, this is my body broken for you. And a few days later, the disciples would have known that that meant his body, his literal body hanging on the cross, broken for them. And as he took that cup and he served it to his disciples, and he said, this is my blood, they would also remember his hands that served them the cup, but his hands that were also flowing with the blood. When we are invited to the table, our interactions with one another the community and the connection that we have with the people around us is part of forming this understanding of what Christ has done. He hasn't saved me. He saved us. He hasn't saved me. He saved us. He loves me and he loves us. And the grace of God is so much more beautiful when it's not just about me. The grace of God is so much more beautiful when it's about the fallen world that he has come to save. And when I partake of this moment, it's something that reminds me that God has invited me not just to the feast on this earth with him, but to feast with him in heaven. Let this remind us of the invite that God has given to us. Every single one of us. The invite that stands valid today to the day that you die and invite to his table. Can I encourage you to say yes to the invite? To put aside the things that are taking up the place in your life and to say, yes, I will be at that table. Host team, if you can come and serve communion this morning. Receive this this morning. Let it be uh, an invitation.
that you're responding to. Jesus, thank you so much for the invite to your feast. And God, I know that I'm not deserving. But God, I help, help me to understand that you're not asking me to be deserving. You're simply asking me to turn up. God, I'm one of those poor. I'm one of those who have got nothing to give. And yet you still ask me to come. And God, I pray that as, I, as we take of this bread, as we take of this cup, we pray that we are reminded of the nourishment that you've given us toward eternal life. We thank you for your invite, and we say yes, Lord. Why don't you take up the bread, and why don't you take up the cup? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church, or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.